The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And we return to this very important passage that's given to us by the Lord that tells us that there is a church in the world today that Christ promised that his church would be here and it will be here until he comes again. There's a very definite promise that we find here in this 18th verse of Matthew 16 where Jesus said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is a promise. That last part of that verse is a promise that there is a church in the world today that has a vital link to New Testament doctrine, and that doctrine has ever remained the same, and Jesus still has a church that he began with his personal ministry upon the earth. Now that is actually what we call the doctrine of perpetuity, And that's what we're here to talk about tonight, that there still is that church in the world today that does identify with New Testament doctrine. And so we believe that promise because Christ made that promise and he always tells the truth. So we believe the promise. We don't believe that the church has ever apostatized. We do not believe that the true church ever became unrecognizable. We do not believe that the church ever disappeared. We don't believe that the church ever stopped. And we do not believe the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ ever had to be reformed or that it needed to be restarted at a later time. Now, we, we, we believe that there is a pure stream of the gospel that's come down to us since the time of Christ, and it has been kept that way by the preserving and the protecting power of God himself. God will not let his church fail. So in every age, there, there has been a true church, and it is the history of the church through the ages that is the focus of this part of our study. Now, I will explain... Uh, as we go on here in a few minutes, that we, we don't make any claims that every church in the line of true churches has maintained absolute perfect compliance to every doctrine that we find in the Word of God. We know that that can't be true. That's an impossible thing because churches are made up of fallible people. And so through the ages, we will find churches that are in various uh, doctrinal errors But we will always maintain that there has been a true gospel and certain essential doctrines, core doctrines that have been held on to, and those have never been relinquished by the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's where I want to start with you tonight. I want to talk about the the core doctrines that define a true New Testament church. And all four of these must be true before you can actually have a church that is a true church. So let's begin with that. The very first doctrine is one that you can very well imagine. That is salvation by grace through faith alone. A true church must have the right gospel. You see, the Lord's people are made the Lord's people by their salvation. And so they must have the truth of the salvation of the gospel. We do believe that the church is comprised of a regenerated membership. And so... Uh, that means that the, the, that the church 
that preaches what the Apostle Paul called another gospel. And you see that in the book of Galatians chapter 1. He calls it another gospel, that a church who preaches another gospel, that is not salvation by grace through faith alone, that simply cannot be a true church. So that rules out salvation by rites and by rituals. It rules out salvation by sacraments or any good works that a person might think that he would do. And the reason that good works can't be a cause of salvation is because they don't actually become good works until those works have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't happen until a person has actually been justified by his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't have any good works that would actually make us a part of the true church. So the only relationship that we have with Christ is the relationship that we have with him through salvation. And of course, uh, as we're being sanctified, our good works actually follow our salvation. So the only relationship we have in the church is a saving relationship. Now doctrine number two is believers' baptism by immersion. Now the New Testament uh, shows that the method of baptism was by immersion. Now that has been agreed upon by almost all scholars in all ages, no matter what denominational affiliation they might have, that the New Testament uh, believers practiced immersion. And so sprinkling uh, was never used in the New Testament. History shows that that came later in the apostolic era. So those that were baptized were actually believers, and that's a precedent that was set by John the Baptist. And if you look clearly at this, you can see it in Acts chapter 2, where it says there that believers were baptized and then they were added to the church. And so we maintain that a person must be a believer before he can be baptized. He, ha he must have made a conscious commitment to Christ by faith. And then he has to be baptized according to that New Testament method. That is by immersion. And so if you have a group of people that have improper baptism... According to that scripture that we have in Acts chapter 2, an improper baptism could not make a person a, a part of a church. So Acts chapter 2 shows that believers did not become a part of the church until after their baptism. And when we talk about baptism by immersion, of course, then we have to exclude all other forms. That means sprinkling, it mean, and it means infant baptism because they need to be believers. It also excludes a baptism of, of adult unbelievers, whether that would be by immersion or by, or by sprinkling. So pra churches that practice the wrong kind of baptism, they cannot be true churches. Now thirdly, is the belief in Scripture alone. And by that I mean uh, the New Testament church regards the Word of God as the inspired revelation of God. That it places no value upon traditions as rules of faith and practice if those traditions are contrary to God's Word. Now I know that you're aware that we have many different traditions that we practice in the church. But if we ever, and we might practice those, church, those traditions, they might be wrong, but what we couldn't do is practice any kind of tradition that we knew to be against the New Testament and to claim that that, tra that tradition is actually above New Testament doctrine or what we find in the scriptures. So we look at this, that the Bible is the rule of faith and practice, and there's nothing that a, a church is allowed to do or is allowed to command that's beyond the scriptures. Now, as I said, there might be some traditions that we hold in ignorance, but we can never place those traditions above the Word of God. We couldn't knowingly do that. 
we accept only the 66 books of the Bible that are contained in the Old and the New Testament canons as, uh, canon as being the Word of God. We don't accept any other kind of biblical revelation. So we stick strictly to the Bible as the only rule of faith and practice. Now the fourth one is what we call soul liberty, that the church cannot perpetuate itself or maintain itself by compulsion. And so there, there are no doctrines that can be forced upon anyone to ensure that they are in compliance with the practices of the church. Now, there are two things that are important when we talk about this. That, that first of all, we, we can't baptize anybody involuntarily to make them members of the church. Now, so infants could never be made members of the church through an involuntary baptism. But secondly... Um, Religious or soul liberty does not mean that we can't enforce disciplinary rules within the church. And by that, I'm saying that soul liberty and freedom of conscience is not freedom to practice anything that we want to practice despite what the church says. We don't have that freedom, but rather we have a, a, a church that disciplines and corrects according to the New Testament, and we can't maintain membership in that church without abiding by New Testament principles. So soul liberty is simply telling us that we can't coerce people to become Christians. You can't force people to be members of the church. Now, soul liberty is something that has been denied by Roman Catholicism and also by Protestants alike throughout history. So when we look at the true church in history, we look at these doctrines, these four things, as the minimum guidelines. A church might be out of compliance on some other New Testament doctrine, and to whatever degree that they're out of compliance, they're not like the New Testament church. But one thing is for sure, they cannot give up on any of these four particular doctrines. Now, it's evident that throughout the history of the church that it has been involved in many terrible errors. Uh, many of the churches in the New Testament are churches that fell into bad errors, and that's why you have the correction of the apostles and other writers that, that talk to people in the church to try to correct those things. And you look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and there the Lord Jesus is dealing with some very difficult errors that were in those churches. Now, they could be in those errors until they got to the place where they no longer hold to one of these four doctrines or all of these four doctrines that we talk about, and then they're no longer a true church. One of the things that, that those churches in, in Revelation represent, that, that they're representative of churches in all ages. That's one of the reasons why we're given those, those, uh, those churches in chapters 2 and 3. So we see that the church can be involved in some errors, but they can't go so far as to be involved in the errors uh, or against the doctrines that we just talked about. Another thing I might mention to you on this is that a false church cannot grow into a true church. Uh, if the reformers had simply made a complete break, a clean break from Roman Catholicism, and if they'd stuck to the doctrines that, that were right, and they had joined the already existent churches at that time that were teaching the truth, there wouldn't be any such thing as Protestants today. But rather we would have many, many more good New Testament churches so you can't take a, a false church that's grown out of a corrupt one and make it a true church. And so we're looking in history uh, at churches that have these minimal qualifications 
And, and there are true churches that are in other doctrinal errors, just as we have today. I mean, there are many true Baptist churches that do have differences in doctrine from us. And we know that's true because uh, we, we know that there, over the past 10 years or so, there's been a, a shift in some of the doctrines that we teach here. And that doesn't mean that 10 years ago we weren't a true church. No, we were a true church, but over the past 10 years, what we've strived to do is to come closer to that doctrine that we find in the New Testament. So we become more like the New Testament church. And, and as you are very well aware, there are others that disagree with those doctrines, but we maintain that they are still true churches and that they are fine, upstanding, holy Christians. I don't have any doubt about that. We have good friendships and we have affection for people who may not agree in every doctrine that we hold. But if we were to depart from any of those four doctrines, or if those churches were to depart from any of those four doctrines, then we couldn't have fellowship with them. And they wouldn't have fellowship with us. Because those are the things that make a true church. Now, another thing that we need to understand as we look at history is this question. By whom was much of church history recorded? And it's plainly a fact that much of the history of the church was recorded by those who were enemies of the true church. People who persecuted true believers. And you, you know that they would have very strong prejudices against them. They made claims against them that they were in heresy or they made claims against their orthodoxy. Things that just simply were not true. Now, what tend to, tended to happen during the history of the church is that those who were opposed to dissenters would, would lump everybody into one group according to the heresy that was popular at that time. For instance, in the 4th century, there was a controversy that was known as Arianism. And Arianism, uh, those were people that followed a man by the name of Arius, and Arius taught against the doctrine of the Trinity. But there were many true believers that lived in that time that the opponents of the true church claimed that they were also followers of Arius. And so they claimed a heresy for them that they did not actually believe. And so there were a lot of true churches that were lumped in together with this group that's known as the Arians. But in fact, there were true churches there that had nothing at all to do with the heresy of Arius. And then you have uh, churches like in the 13th century. Uh, there was a group in southern France that was known as the Albigenses. And they are accused of various doctrinal heresies. One of them is being devil worshipers. Now, they were called Albigenses because they were from a town in southern France called Albi. And so everybody that was in that geographical location was known as Albigenses. And it was known that there were some people there who did believe in, in worshiping the devil. But there were also, in that particular area, true churches that stood against Roman Catholicism. And what the Roman Catholics did was to lump them in together and call all of them Albigenses. And so you have some true churches and some false churches that are going under the same name. And so that becomes a problem for us as we're looking for history because we have to separate those out. We have to identify those. And so when you're looking at history that's been recorded by opponents, they're never going to look at a group like the Albigenses and claim that, that they were actually true believers. And neither would we claim that they were all true believers if we're looking at the same criteria. And that's why you have people like R.C. Sproul, 
uh, who will go along with some of these claims that are made against the Albigenses that they were actually unorthodox heretics. Now, I've told you before that Sproul is what I call the consummate Protestant, so he does believe that the Roman Catholic Church was once a true church, and so he would go along with whatever names have been assigned by the Roman Catholics to those who were their enemies. So we do have to understand that. We have to understand that we're looking at a mixed history, one that's been recorded by both Roman Catholics and Protestants who were enemies of the true church. So there were heretics along with true Christians going under the same names that were given by their opponents. And then it wasn't until the 17th century that those kind of uh, distinctions began to desist. Uh, all along this time, there were people that were called Anabaptist, and that name Anabaptist was shortened to Baptist. And uh, in, in that group that's called the Anabaptist, there are many, many people that, that held to heresies that there is no way that we could agree with. We, we would separate ourselves completely from them. And that's the same problem. You have true believers mixed in with false churches that are going by the same name. Then when you get to the 17th century, the Anna prefix was dropped. Now, in case you didn't know, Anna, an Anabaptist simply means a rebaptizer, somebody who wouldn't take the baptism of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, or take the baptism of Protestants. They were called Anabaptist. And in the 17th century, that Anna was dropped, and all the heretical sects were stripped away from that that believed all many different types of things, and the name simply became Baptist, and that identifies with the very same doctrines that we're teaching in the church today. So they strip away all the fanatical, heretical groups. Those are taken away, and what remains is the name Baptist that believe like we do. Now, one of the things that shows you is that they were never a part of Roman Catholicism, never a part of Protestantism. And so we, just like the Anabaptists, are not Protestants. Now, I hope all that makes sense to you because you need to know this when you pick up a general history of Christianity that you're going to find these kinds of problems. Most of that history has been written by enemies, by Roman Catholics and by Protestants. So what I recommend for you to do, if you want to study the history of the Baptist Church, that you look into sources like W.A. Gerald. I don't think he's in relation to Tabor, I'm not sure. But uh, W.A. Gerald, uh, David Benedict, John T. Christian, Orchard and Cathcart, and maybe a couple of others. Those are the histories that you want to look at. Now even further, uh, this does not mean um, that in the history of the Baptists that we are exclusive to one particular name. Now, we didn't actually receive the name Baptist until the 17th century, and so there were Baptist churches or believers that believe the same thing that we believe that go by many different names throughout history. Uh, Jesus didn't actually give the church a name. Uh, there, there's no name in the New Testament that's given to us. Uh, we do know that in the book of Acts that the first ones who called us Christians were actually the enemies of Christ. But the apostles had no trouble using the name Christian, and that stuck. And so when we think about the, the name for the church, I, I don't really have a, a, any kind of distaste for the name Baptist. Uh, that was also given to us by enemies. But if Jesus called John the Baptist, John was the one who baptized all who were the very first members of the church, then I don't have any problem adopting that name. That's fine with me. It identifies who we are. 
Now, having said all of that, before we get into the particular history of the church, what I want to do tonight is to give you an overview of how some of today's churches came into being. Now, of course, what we claim is that we have a connection to the New Testament churches, a connection that is, is there because of our doctrine. And there have been people that have believed what we believe in all ages. In fact, next week we're going to look a little bit more at that as we look at what historians, even of other faiths, have said. But there, there are people who have believed like this Baptist church believes today, all the way back to the time of Christ. And so we, we, we believe that we have that unbroken chain of doctrine. But there are others that are in churches or churches that began since that time that can't make that same claim. They hold all of these four essential things that we've just talked about. So we're going to look at where some of these uh, other groups called churches actually got their beginning. And when I use the word church in describing them, uh, I'm using that only in a generic sense. I mean, I'm not making a claim that they are the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the very distinction that we're trying to make. So we're going to look at that, and as we study history, we'll, I'm just going to look at this briefly tonight, and as we study the history of the church in different eras, we'll bring these up again as we look at the particular time in history that they came into being. So what is the origin of some of the religious groups that we have today. And I can't talk about all of them because there are so many. We're going to talk about some of the major ones. Where did they get their beginning? Well, number one on the list would have to be the Roman Catholic Church. And it got its beginning in the 4th century. And we have to start with them because they are uh, or they have the longest history of apostasy of any of these groups. They are even the parents and the grandparents of many of the groups that we're going to talk about tonight. Now, under Roman Catholicism, you can also put the Eastern Orthodox churches, and you put the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox, because essentially they have the same doctrine and they come from the same source. Now, in Western Europe, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church predominates. In Eastern Europe, you do have those Eastern Orthodox, Russian, and so on, the Greek Orthodox, and uh, they predominate in the Mideast and also in, in Eastern countries. And what each of these churches claim is apostolic succession. In other words, they started with Christ, and they received their authority from him, given to the apostles, and they are in the same line of this apostolic succession. Now, remember we talked a little bit about that last week. Apostolic succession means that there is a line of bishops that stretches all the way back to the very beginning. It starts with the apostles, and it's handed down to the next, to the next, to the next. And you know who they say it's handed down through? It's handed down through the popes. That's their apostolic succession. Now, when you come to the Eastern Orthodox churches, they don't follow the Pope, but they do believe that they still have an apostolic succession. So they can trace their doctrine back to Christ and to the apostles. Now, worldwide, Catholicism claims about one and a half billion adherents, and they do claim that connection to the apostles, especially being transmitted to Peter as the first Pope. Now, we know that that's a false claim, we looked at that last week. Peter never claimed any authority as the Pope. There is no scriptural support for that at all. But nevertheless, they make that claim of succession, and they also claim that all churches, all people, are apostate but them. 
But their true church, or a true history rather, shows that they actually begin, uh, they have a post-apostolic beginning. And what they are is actually a conglomeration of all the false churches that, pretty much all the false churches that began, or false groups that sprang up and departed from the faith all the way from the first to the fourth centuries. It's a conglomeration of all of that group. Or as Richard Bennett so correctly said, Roman Catholicism is the first or original schismatic. Now we have to look at this not based on just what their name is and what they claim, but we do have to look at the doctrine. And Roman Catholicism misses being a true church on all four doctrines that we talked about. First of all, they reject justification by faith alone. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church says that if you believe that you are justified by faith alone, you are anathema. And that word simply means a curse is put upon you. And they claim it's absolutely not true. You cannot say that you are not partly at least justified by your works. Roman Catholics are also sacramentarians and sacerdotalists. Now, sacramentarian, that means that they believe in the saving efficacy of the sacraments. And they actually have seven of those. Uh, Seven sacraments. And they believe there is saving power. There is grace that's given in the sacraments. And then when we talk about sacerdotalism, that means that they believe that there is a mediator between you and God. That you cannot reach God on your own, but there is actually a priest that stands between you and God, and you must receive the sacraments from him and other, you know, all the things that go along with that. And so what they actually do with sacerdotalism is they put salvation into the hands of the priest. Now, it, it, that might, be, might look a little obscure, but that's exactly what it is. When you say that you have to have a priest between you and God and you can't reach God and he's the one that puts you in touch there and gives you all the things that you have to do and you can't be saved without him, where does that put salvation? It puts it in the hands of the priest. And by transference or along the same line, it puts it in the hands of the church. And this is why the Roman Catholic Church says that there is no salvation but in them. Now, that's, that's still official Roman Catholic doctrine, although they very much obscure that today. This is what they actually believe. There is no salvation but in the church. So to be saved, you have to go through the church. You have to go through the priest. And this is the way that Roman Catholicism has held on to its iron grip on people throughout the centuries, or you might say a death grip. That's the way they've held on to it, because they made people believe you cannot be saved without the church. And that puts great fear into people, and so what do they do? They follow everything that the church says. Now, the Roman Catholic Church misses the mark on baptism as well, because they believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, and they baptize infants. Now, they miss on two parts. They miss on the the mode, they miss on the purpose, and then they also, there are three things actually there, they miss on soul liberty. So what they can actually do is make a person a Christian involuntarily, and that's what they do through the baptism of babies. They also deny soul liberty because throughout all of the centuries, they have been persecutors of people who didn't believe like they do. They miss it because they elevate tradition above Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church actually says they're the only ones who can interpret Scripture. 
And then they take those traditions and wherever they might be in conflict with the Word of God, they believe that they have the authority to change those things and to make their traditions binding. Now, the Roman Catholic Church especially has a doctrine that the, the church is the one who gives the authority to the Scriptures. Now, we're the exact opposite of that. We believe the Scriptures give the authority to the church. So Roman Catholics are upside down on that. So on all accounts... Roman Catholicism misses being a true church. And I'll add to that that they miss it in very blasphemous ways. That Roman Catholicism is a blight on Christianity. And that might sound a little bit strong, but the truth of Roman Catholicism is a very ugly truth that cannot be made pretty, no matter how that you look at it. So, you know, we feel sorry for this. And I'm, and I'm not denouncing uh, this because we hate Roman Catholics, but it's absolutely not true. I say these things because we feel very sorry and our hearts are broken for people that are caught in that delusion. But we don't make any excuses from their, for their wicked priesthood and the purposeful delusion that they put upon people. I make no excuses for them. Now, let me sum up Catholicism with this quote from William Downing. He said, Romanism bears no resemblance to New Testament Christianity, only a faint resemblance to the Old Testament priesthood and religious system. Its roots are pagan and mystic. The three essentials of New Testament truth, and we actually list four of those, but he says three are completely lacking. Rome utterly denies salvation by grace, having substituted the epitome of sacerdotalism and a system of salvation by works under the guidance of a priest cult she retains no concept of believer's baptism by immersion, but a baptismal regeneration of infants at the labor. Rome theoretically denies all and any freedom of conscience or soul liberty, and her bloody hands are a horrible historic witness to this fact. The church of Rome is not, nor has it ever been, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we agree wholeheartedly with that statement. Now, the next church that we want to look at is the Anglican Church, or the Episcopalian Church, that had its beginnings in the 16th century. Now, they had their beginning with Henry VIII. That was in England in the middle of the 16th century. Now, they're also known, of course, as the Church of England. And this church has a very scandalous beginning, in more ways than one. Uh, they actually began with Henry's uh, argument with the Pope his defiance of the Pope in the matter of divorce. I think most of you are probably familiar with all the wives that Henry VIII had and all the divorces he had and the unfortunate women who happened to be married to him because they didn't survive the experience. Uh, Henry was a murderer. He was a Roman Catholic that defied the Pope's authority and he split with Roman Catholicism saying that the king is to be the head of the church. And still in England today... One of the titles of the kings and of the queens is the defender of the faith. That, that's a part of their official title. Anglicanism also claims apostolic authority. Uh, they follow Roman Catholicism on that, although they don't have a pope. But they miss the essentials of being a true church by, on several different levels. They, they miss it on baptism and they miss it on soul liberty. And that's not to say that there haven't been many many good Anglicans. I mean, those who did believe the true doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. The Protestant Reformation affected uh, this uh, in great ways. 
there were actually many Puritans who were in Anglicanism. And we, we know what the Puritans believed as far as the doctrines of grace. And that tells us that they had the truth of salvation. They had that right. But then when Parliament passed the Act of Uniformity in 1549, that drove many of those good Puritan preachers out of their pulpits. And when that happened, there was this complete degradation of truth in the Anglican Church. Now today, uh, well, I'd say as late as the 19th century, there were still some, some good men in Anglicanism. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle was one of those, and he strongly defended justification by faith alone. But today... Anglicans, Episcopalians, don't really hold on to very much truth. They're, they're not defenders of the faith. There are still a few, but by and large, they are not defenders of the faith. So they miss this on their infant baptism. Uh, they, they miss it on, on uh, soul liberty. They were also persecutors. Uh, so they, they can't be the true church. They, they miss out. E even if they had it right on the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, they fail in this, these important other areas as being true churches. Now the third one of these is the Lutheran Church. And the Lutheran Church had its beginning in the 16th century. I think most of you are aware that Martin Luther was the founder of the Lutheran Church. And you often hear me mention him in a very good light because uh, I, Martin Luther stood strongly on justification by faith alone. And he was really a lone voice against Catholicism, against the Pope. Uh, he's the, founder, the starter of the Protestant Reformation, essentially. And um, he, he stood out against that. And I have no doubt about this, that God led Martin Luther against these terrible, uh, terrible heresies that were in Roman Catholicism and the way that they were leading people astray. I don't have any doubt about that. But Martin Luther himself is kind of a strange character because at times he's very hard to figure out. If you've, if you've read him... He's hard to figure out on some things because in one place where he makes a clean, definitive statement of truth, he may give it away in another. So it makes it kind of difficult to follow him. Um, Luther, though, is, is a inter very interesting character, I think. Uh, if, you, if you want to get a good taste of Luther, I would recommend that you read his magnum opus, which is the, um, um, I'm trying to think what it's called here, The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. That's an excellent book. I recommend that you read that. And when you do, you'll get a taste for what, like, what theological debate was like in the 16th century. And it wasn't for the faint-hearted. I mean, it was tough stuff. Uh, you know, you think that I call names. Martin Luther was champion at that kind of thing. But anyway, Martin Luther, you, you need to read him. Um, there are some very good things about Luther. But we do have trouble with Lutheranism especially Lutheranism today, because on the signature doctrine for which Martin Luther came out of Roman Catholicism, which was justification by faith alone, that's greatly obscured today in the official documents of the Roman Catholic, or rather the Lutheran Church because they also believe in baptismal regeneration. That baptism has something to do with your salvation. So they mix that baptism into the formula, and so that makes it fall on the doctrine of salvation. And then there's also infant baptism that's found in the church. Uh, that's a disagreement with soul liberty. Pers uh, Lutheran churches were persecutors in the beginning. That's part of their history. They became a state church. And whenever you have a state church, you are ensured that there will be persecution. That's, that's always the case. So they fail in those areas. 
So we have to discount Lutheranism as being the true church. It didn't begin with Christ. It's centuries removed from the first church, and it doesn't hold on to the same doctrines that we receive from Christ. Fourthly, there are the Reformed churches, and they got their start in the 16th century, also in the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformed churches include Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, and um, Reformed Church of America and a few others. Uh, They're included in that group. And they actually have John Calvin to thank for their beginning. Now, like Luther, Calvin uh, had, very, had, much in, had much in his doctrine to commend. I mean, he, he's considered to be the premier tho- theologian of the Protestant Reformation. Some even think that Calvin was the greatest theologian of all time behind the Apostle Paul. I seriously doubt that, but uh, that is a claim that's, that's made about him. And, of course, we do know that he was a champion for the doctrines of grace. And much of what you read about Calvin, of course, comes from his opponents that oppose that doctrine. And much of what they say is misinformation and plain lies, exaggerations, and so forth. But, but Calvin was wrong on some things. Um, you, know, you know, the inter- interesting thing about Calvin and the doctrines of grace is that there are many people who deny those doctrines not on the basis of a biblical stand, not because they can take the Bible to disprove them, but simply because it was John Calvin who believed them. And often you'll hear this. is one of the very first things that uh, someone will make uh, against arguments against Calvin will be on the person of Calvin, who he was. Well, Calvin had some, had some issues. There's no doubt about that. He was wrong on some things. He was the furthest away from all of the, Reforma- of the Reformation churches from Rome, which is a good thing, but he failed the test on essential New Testament doctrines. Now, so he may have been right about salvation, and we think that he was, but he was wrong on issues such as infant baptism. Now, the, the Reformed churches don't practice infant baptism for the same reason that Roman Catholics do and not the same reason that the Lutherans do because they don't believe that it has anything with saving a person. But they do make infants members of the church even though they haven't yet received salvation, they make them members of the church through that baptism. And that's a denial of soul liberty. And then also, uh, the Reformed churches were persecutors. I mean, that's, that's a plain evident fact. In fact, we even find it right here in the United States that those Puritans that were right on the doctrines of grace that we've just talked about were also persecutors. And in this country, we had to, to uh, get out from under what the Puritans were teaching because they believe in a church-state government before we could have religious liberty in the United States. And so we're just simply pointing out things. What makes people fail in being a true church of Christ? And these are things that are not taught in the New Testament, essentials, that you must have, core doctrines that you must have to be a true church, and they don't have it. Fifthly, there is the Methodist church. And the Methodist church, oh, I'm getting them all here now. In the 18th century, the Methodists had their beginning, and they were begun by John Wesley. They actually came out of the Church of England, or the Anglican church, the Episcopalian church. And there are some who say that George Whitfield was instrumental in beginning the Methodist Church, and that's because Whitfield had a very close association with Wesley, even though they were very much different in their doctrine on some things. Uh, They were traveling companions, but Whitfield actually died before the Methodist Church got its start, so he's not one of the founders of Methodism. That was John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley. And so uh, because of that close association, though, people think that Whitfield had a part of that 
Well, with the time at the time that Wesley came along, he did believe, very strongly believe, in salvation by grace through faith alone. But what Wesley did was to steer Methodism towards Arminianism, and those are doctrines that obscure the doctrines of uh, the doctrine of salvation. Methodists practice infant baptism, and that makes them disqualified as being a church. But then when Wesley came along, uh, persecution, religious persecution, was pretty much done by then, so they don't fail uh, on being a church because they were persecutors or that uh, particular area of soul liberty, but as I said, they do fail on the basis of infant baptism. It was Methodism that gave rise to the Nazarene Church, to the Christian and Missionary Alliance, to the Pentecostal groups that we find today. Those all have roots in Methodism. Now, one thing about Methodism, if I was to point out the, the absolute worst influence that Methodism has had today, especially among Baptists, is the infiltration of that Arminian doctrine into Baptist churches. Now, that, that particular thing has been a strong contention between Baptist churches for a long, long time. And so that's a terrible influence that Methodism has had on Baptists. Now, sixthly, I'm trying to hurry. I didn't think it was going to take this long. Uh, sixthly are the Campbellites. The Campbellites. And these are mostly what we call churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, the Christian church. And they were begun by Alexander Campbell in the early 19th century, actually beginning in the period of the Second Great Awakening. Campbell was a Presbyterian who became a Baptist and then was kicked out. Now, he believed that the true church had disappeared from the earth and that it had to be restored. And he figured that he was the man for the job. Now, when Alexander Campbell was a Baptist, or when he was ostensibly a Baptist, he started teaching salvation by baptism. So he actually believed in baptismal regeneration. And what he did during the time that, that he was claiming to be a Baptist is that he started teaching that in Baptist churches and so he began to tear up Baptist churches. And I mentioned to you this before, that back in Kentucky where I'm from, that you can find uh, Baptist churches that began out of the old English Baptist churches, uh, you know, that came over to this country. And you can find those churches that are on one corner, and then very close to them, not very far away, you'll find a church that split off of that church, and that church began under Alexander Campbell because he was preaching baptismal regeneration in Baptist churches. And so you'll find those churches of Christ and Christians and church, Christian churches and disciples of Christ very close to the very same Baptist churches that they came out of or they split from. Now today, those splinter churches still teach uh, baptismal regeneration and they are just utterly corrupt in their doctrine. Now one thing that I have to say about them uh, especially about churches of Christ, is that they are maybe even worse than Roman Catholicism in their teaching of, of being justified by your works. I mean, they just dismally fail as being true churches on the basis of their doctrine of salvation. And then the thing that makes them so, so dangerous, I think, is because they, they masquerade as immersionist. I mean, they look like they may be teaching the truth, but what they actually believe is they deny the depravity of man, they deny the sinful nature, they deny the worth of the atonement, they deny the eternal security of the believer. They have a pure works-based 
system. And so they fail the church or fail the test of being a church in many different eras, era, uh, areas. Now, seventhly, there are the Pentecostal and Holiness churches, and they had their beginning in the 20th century. Now, as I said earlier, those, those churches grew out of Methodism. Uh, these are groups like the Assemblies of God, Foursquare Gospel, Pentecostal Holiness, Church of God in Christ, the Church of God, and there are many others that are included in those Pentecostal groups. And the thing about this particular group, that it is actually the fastest growing segment of this umbrella of Christianity that we have in the world today. They claim about 500 million members worldwide. And they're actually becoming even more dangerous than the Roman Catholics because the Roman Catholic churches also embraced the, uh, the Pentecostal movement or the charismatic movement. And this is the way Catholicism always does, that if, if there is something that, that looks good to them and will help them to get more people in, they'll just change their doctrine to accept it. And so they have begun to accept the charismatic movement. But there's a very dangerous thing about the charismatic movement, well, maybe more than one dangerous thing, uh, and that is they embrace just about every aberrant doctrine that you can think of claiming that they receive that information from the Holy Spirit. Now, what you'll hear is you'll hear me preach against them many, many times from the pulpit. And you need to understand this very well about what they actually stand for and who they are. Uh, if you want to know more about it, much more than I can give you here, read John MacArthur's book entitled Strange Fire, his new book, Strange Fire. So what I'll say about this movement, it fails the test of being a church. And its biggest failure today is that it has rejected Scripture alone as authority for all kinds of different biblical, uh, extra-biblical revelation. So you've got to watch out for them because they're in a church near you or they're coming to a church near you. And then finally, and I need to stop for tonight, and that's the cults. The cults. And I'm talking here about the ones that began in the 19th century on up to the present. There's a question I'm often asked. Is Roman Catholicism a cult? Well, in just about every way, you can say, yes, they are a cult, but they're not generally put into this group. This group is the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventist, um, the Christian scientists, and, and people like those. Those are the cults that we're talking about here. And some of those groups, of course, still continue to spring up today. Now, all of those... Are, are fairly recent in their history, but the heresies that they hold on to are very old heresies, uh, like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness. They, they embrace some of that Arian doctrine that I talked to you about that came out of the 4th century. So that tells you heresy can be very old heresy. But when you talk about a cult, there, there's usually a couple of common threads that run through them. And the first one is their denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny Christ's deity, or they make a different Christ than what we find in Scripture, or they obscure who Christ is. So the Christ that they believe in is not the Christ of the Bible. So they're, they're very deceitful workers of darkness, and you have to watch out for these cults. And then the second common thread that runs through them is the denial of Scripture as the only revelation that we have from God. And that's why the Mormons have the Book of Mormon, and it's why they have the, what they call the doctrines and the covenants, which are actually writings, as far as I'm concerned, of raging lunatics. But they, they, they believe that that is 
the, a word that came from God and they put that above the 66 books of the Bible. Then, of course, you have the Jehovah Witnesses who, who believe the Watchtower is above the Bible. And then you have the Seventh-day Adventists who believe that Ellen G. White was a prophetess. And she disagrees with Scripture, and yet they believe that she had the truth. And you can just go on and on with that. I mean, these are common things, the denial of the deity of Christ and also the acceptance of other things as being word that's come from God. So they failed the test. They don't know the Christ of the Bible. They're actually the Gnostics of John's time. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures on that. This is what John wrote in 1 John 2. He said, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And I don't know if you remember, but when I preached on that text, that verse actually means that what we must believe about Christ is everything that the Bible says about him. So if the Bible says that Christ is God and he claimed to be God, we have to believe that or we are a denier of Christ. And this is exactly what John is talking about. Then he wrote in 1 John 5, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So again, it must be the record that God gave of his Son. That's what's contained in the Bible. So they deny Christ. And you could stop right there. And you don't have to go any further to say they're not true churches because they deny Christ. So that's all the proof that we need for them. And I'll say this uh, about them. These people are not Christians. Now, we'll find in all of these other groups that I've talked about, in, almost, in all of them, you're going to find some Christians there. And in some of them, some very good Christians. But in this group, if they believe what these cults teach, they are not Christians. And we don't claim that Mormons are Christians. Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. Christian scientists are not Christian. And we need to get that very, very clear in our minds. So what does that do? Well, that leaves us among the major groups with only one major group that doesn't have a human founder, one that can trace its history all the way back to the time of Christ, holding on to those very same essential doctrines. And they haven't been always known by one name, but they come down to us today in the doctrines that are taught in the Baptist church. Well, you say, well, how? How, how can we make a claim like that? Well, we look at the four essentials. We believe and we've always upheld salvation by grace through faith alone. We have always upheld and believed baptism of believers and doing it by immersion, which is the New Testament method. We have always believed that the scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice. We don't accept anything else. And... The Baptists have always believed in soul liberty. And if you know your history of the United States, you know who it was that gave us religious freedom in the United States? Baptist. It's the Baptist people who gave us religious freedom. And we've always upheld this principle that no one has the right to coerce anyone to become a Christian, to be baptized, to be a part of the church. That is a matter of the conscience between a person and his God. So we've always stood for religious freedom. Now, it's true that there are, among those who call themselves Baptists today, those who aren't true churches. There are some Baptist churches that are extremely liberal 
and they fail because they, they just really don't teach the Word of God. You even wonder sometimes if you can find salvation in those churches. So we do know that there's some that, that have the name, but they aren't true churches. And so what that tells us is you have to be very careful with your investigation. Look at what a church teaches. What does the pastor teach? What is the official, the official stance of the church on the doctrines of the faith? Find that out. And if you find that they're still holding to all these principles that I've just mentioned to you, then you have a true church. It's the doctrine that holds us together. So we're going to maintain that. We're going to stand on that. If Jesus said there is a true church that's held all the way back to these principles since he began it, then we believe it exists. And if we didn't think that we were the true church, we would be something else because that's what we want to be. We want to be the true church. So we'll look at true New Testament doctrine. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spent tonight. And uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to look into the ways that you have preserved your church. Uh, some of what I've had to say tonight may be difficult on people that have confidence in some other group. But we do know that, that people need to believe in you as personal Savior. That's where our salvation is. That's the most important thing. And then, of course, to honor you and glorify you, we want to make sure that we're in the place where truth is being taught, that that's maintained that truth, that can connect itself all the way back to the time of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have have given us these truths and not that we are deserving of it, not that we can brag about it, not that we can say that we are anybody that or anything that somebody else isn't. Everything that we know and practice and do, we do by the grace of God. And we thank you for that. Bless our people. We thank you for those who have come tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.